1: Welcome back to the Business Systems Summit. I'm your host, David Jennings. And in this session, we're going to be chatting with the legendary John Warillo. He's the author of Drilling for Gold, The Automatic Customer, and the now classic Built to Sell, which we talk quite a lot about in our community. So great to get John finally as part of the program. So he's gone on to build the Value Builder System, which is a system to strategically build up the value of companies. Now, there are a range of different components. We're actually going to drill into one of those particular systems as part of this session. So, we'll go into that in in more detail. But what I like most about John's work is it's clearly based on real-world experience. He's started and sold for businesses himself. And I think the unique addition that he's added into the space around building businesses that work without the owner really is this focus on recurring revenue. And it's often an area overlooked, yet it's absolutely critical for building value in companies. So much so that, uh, yeah, John's work has personally influenced my move away from agency work as we've started to build up System Hub, which is a recurring-based SaaS business, all focusing on that recurring revenue. And I've enjoyed listening to his podcast where he digs in deep with business owners and gets them to share how they've built and sold their company. So long story short, it's a great pleasure that I get to welcome John to the summit.
0: Thanks for having me, David. Good to be with you.
1: Thank you for, uh, yeah, making the time. And I know we've got a lot to cover um, and we're going to drive, I suppose, very specifically into the scalability um, part of the the trifecta system. Have I pronounced Mm -hmm. that correctly? That's the name of the system? Yeah, scalability
0: trifecta, yeah.
1: So maybe just to start, a great way would be for you to explain just the problem that this particular system aims to solve for the business owner and then we could actually go into it step by step.
0: Yeah, so for a lot of small business owners, they reach the, the ceiling of complexity where they can't grow the company beyond a certain threshold. For some businesses, it happens at $500,000 in revenue. Other businesses, it's $2 million or $3 million in revenue. But, but the telltale sign you're in that trap, and we call it the owner's trap, is where you can't really grow anymore. And so year after year, you have the same revenue and you start to wonder, what am I doing wrong? And in many cases, what we find is that the business is just too dependent on the owner. And when you run out of kind of hours in the day, there's no more time left to sell. And and so your business sort of flatlines. And it may be a profitable company, but it's not one that's growing nor nor could you really sell it. And I think that's yeah, all too common because oftentimes it has a lot to do with,
1: you know, that startup founder, they got these big ideas. They're out there trying to solve the problems of the world. They're quick moving. They're putting out fires and they just develop all of these skills that then end up holding them back from making that transition and starting to plug other team members in and letting go of the reins and all those sorts of things. Bridging that gap is oftentimes the hardest gap to bridge for business owners.
0: Yeah, it sure is. I mean, you recall Michael Gerber's classic book, The E-Myth, obviously. He talked about owners having this kind of entrepreneurial seizure where they're, they're the technician, they're a plumber, they're great at plumbing, or they're a, whatever, a, a car mechanic, they're fantastic at fixing cars. And so they say, oh, I'll start a company. And because they're the technical expert, because they have all of this deep subject matter expertise, you find yourself as a technician becoming tempted to sell too many things, right? So you start off and you say, I'm only, you know, your car mechanic and you say, I'm only going to do brake jobs, right? Like I'm a real guru on brake jobs. But But pretty soon, you know, they say, well, you know, my carburetor is gone or, you know, I've got to change my whatever clutch. Can you help? And because they know so much about fixing cars, they get tempted. And so pretty soon the business starts to sell more and more products and services outside of its original idea. And that's where we start to run into problems because you can't hire employees and train them to be technical experts in all the different services you already are a technical expert in. Because... Again, the reason that many of us start companies is because we've had 10, 20, 30 years in a specific industry, whereas it's very difficult to hire employees with the same tenure. And so, guess what? Customers want to deal with the person with all the expertise. And so yes. the owner can never pull themselves out of the business. And as a result, we get stuck in this owner's trap where, you know, whether it happens again at $500,000, $2 or million in revenue, you, know, you just can't grow beyond that. And that's, that's when we've got to really make some. Some big changes. And that's
1: very specifically what this system's been designed to do. Like how do you identify across all of your products and services where you should be focusing? So yeah, maybe take us through a little bit of this process and, and how you can get that clarity for business owners.
0: Yeah. So it's a process that I thought I'd share with you guys that that really comes down to isolating which of your products and services that you're selling today have the foundation the underpinnings to to scale and essentially it comes down to identifying which products and services meet three criteria they've got to be number one teachable to employees number two valuable to customers and finally repeatable you talked about in your introduction recurring revenue they've got to have some sort of recurring purchase pattern or cadence to them and so this kind of process I was going to take you through was really just a way to identify which of your products and services meet that trispective scale and then and then really winnowing it down your services so that you're really focusing on the ones with the greatest potential to grow. And that's really what I found to be the secret of getting out of this owner's trap. It's a funny one because a lot of
1: business owners feel like if they just focus in on one and it's the same with picking one target market and that narrow focus. They feel like they're turning away potentially mm. a lot of business and you know, they're not giving themselves the full opportunity that's there. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. like The focus actually gives them more of a chance to win the market share because they're able to pinpoint and narrow that message and speak directly to their target audience. Can you speak to that a little?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that makes you less referable than being a generalist. Right, if you think about your own behavior, when people ask you for a recommendation, my guess is the people you go out of your way to recommend are specialists. The ones that are just this kind of squishy collection of services and products, nothing really defining them, makes them completely unreferrable. Well, he does a little of SEO, and oh, he also builds websites. And if you need a copywriter, he's great. And he's also got a, a, like a photograph photography business, I mean, you're not going to refer a marketing company that has all kinds of different products and services. Or if you said, you know, this guy is New Zealand's greatest SEO expert, boom. That's something that you can take your teeth into, right? Or or this person is a brilliant direct response copywriter. Mm. Got it. Understood. But when you are a mile wide on products and services, you're not really referable. I was, you know, I just I drive my kid to baseball the other day, and on this sign, I'm a, I'm at a light, and I happen to look over the sign, and it's for a handyman contracting business. So this is, you know, company you can bring in and, and renovate your home or just fix a leaky faucet. On the outside of the of the door, it says something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, but no job too large or too small. General contractors, we do it all. You do nothing, actually. (laughs) You're completely (laughs) utterly unreferable, right? Because a generalist. Whereas if he had the courage to say, we are the greatest kitchen renovators, well, guess who you're going to think of when you think of a kitchen renovator? So look, I'm a huge fan of that old expression, narrow your focus, broaden your appeal. If we as business owners rely on anything, it's word of mouth. We can't compete with Google and Apple and Tesla for marketing dollars. So we've got to rely on word of mouth. One customer, you know, speaking kindly to the next. And the only way we do that is being referable and being referable. The, the precursor is doing one thing better than anybody else.
1: Yeah. Well, what's then the first step in, in making ourselves, you know, very clear focused?
0: Yeah. So again, it's, it's taking... So step one is to take a whiteboard or, you know, or even a, a pad of paper, a pen, and just write down the list of products and services that you offer today. So some of your products businesses, so you can write down your SKUs. If you sell thousands of SKUs, clearly you can, sell, you, know, can, you can categorize them into major buckets. You're looking for a list of you know, 10 to 20 items, right? So you can, you can break it down in your own way. So step one is just brainstorming all the service lines that you offer, all the product lines you offer today. Now, don't be tempted to just rank them by revenue, how much revenue you generate from each product line. That's somewhat irrelevant at this stage. All I want you to do in step one is write down all the products and services that you sell today. And when you've got that list and you figure you've got a pretty comprehensive way, you can move to step two which is to score each service or product line on the trifecta scale, these three attributes. Give them a the score of 0 to 10 on how teachable they are to employees, how valuable they are to customers, and how repeatable they are. So if you want, David, we can, we can sort of dig in. Yeah, let's
1: drop, dive into each. I think that would be helpful.
0: Yeah, again, step two in this process is to score them each on these three attributes. So the first one, how teachable they are to employees. In essence, what you've got to do is to build out of this sort of owner's trap is to get employees to do the work. Sounds very simple. It's very hard, as you probably know, in principle, in practice. So you want products and services you can teach employees to either deliver and or sell. So if you've got a product business, let's say you sell running shoes, Well, clearly, you're not manufacturing the running shoes. So you want to pick a product that employees can either deliver or sell, and that means products that, can, that are easy for them to sell. So you would rate those products and services that are very complex that require you personally to get involved in either delivery of the products or service or the sale of the product or service. You would score those very low on a scale of 0 to 10. By contrast, those products and services that employees can deliver on their own without your involvement would score very high. Yes, And you literally go down your list of all all your products and services, give them a score zero to 10 on how teachable they are to employees.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm imagining also, depending on the size of the business and, and where they're at, it's kind of like future pacing. Sometimes business owners still get stuck in that mentality of thinking nobody can do it as well as me. So we're not necessarily thinking of replicating the business owner, but deliver it to a high standard that the customer would... Get a great result from that product exactly. or service.
0: Like, yeah, nobody's going to deliver the product or service better than you ever. But you want to rate those products and services on essentially ranking them to identify which ones have the potential to be taught that you yeah. could teach to a reasonably high level of efficacy an employee to deliver that product or service. Yeah. So that's step one. Should we move to step two? Yes. Yep. Or the Sorry, um, we're, we're still in step a two. Yeah, yeah. Forgive me. We're still in step two. We're looking at second, uh, the second attribute, which is scoring them all on value. And so this one mixes folks up because value is, is a difficult word to uh, interpret it sometimes. What we're really referring to is value in the eyes of the customer. In other words, is this product or service we're ranking right now valuable coming from you in the eyes of the customer? And sometimes it's easier to think of what the opposite of valuable is. And the opposite of valuable is commodity, Mm. right? So if you sell a product that is a commodity, that is priced by the inch, by the pound, you know, in a Coke, Pepsi, apples to apples comparison product, you're going to score very low on value. By contrast, if you've got a product or service that's really unique and that your customers really value coming from you that you're really differentiated, that you're well-known for that product or service. And, and really, to use an old expression, you know, you've got a bit of a blue ocean strategy or a category of one, you've got some point of differentiation, you're going to score that product or service very high. Yes. And if you're anything like most of us, when we look at all that list of products and services, you know, for some of us, some of them, we're not really well-differentiated at all right? Yeah. But for others, maybe we've got one or two services or products where customers are saying things like, man, I can't get this from anybody else, or I'm so glad you offer this because you know, I, I don't get this from anybody. Those are the ones you're going to score the highest on value. Yeah. Another
1: way to think of it at that particular step that I find quite helpful is thinking, again, drilling into the, the problem that you're solving for the end customer as well and making sure that it is a quality problem that we know that they are looking for a solution and we can deliver that solution to a very high standard. That then becomes...
0: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and what you've actually keyed in on David, is, is a very important point. This exercise, the scalability trifecta, ranking your products and services on teachable, valuable, repeatable, you can do this by customer segment. And so, what I'm giving you right now is just the basic framework of the process and a bit of an overview. If you want to take it to another level entirely, you can go through the same exercise by customer segment. So, if you've got, you know, if you sell the soccer moms and professionals and students as the three segments that buy from you, you can go through the scalability trifecta in the same way. Teachability is likely, the score on teachability is likely to stay the same value and the third attribute recurring yes. repeatability is likely to change by customer segment.
1: Yeah, perfect. And that I suppose leads us to that third attribute,
0: the the recurring value there. It does. So we have you rate things on repeatability. And here again, what we're talking about is the purchase cadence of the customer for that product or service. It has nothing to do with whether you can churn out that widget on a repeatable way. Some people get confused when they hear the word repeatable. They think it means that, you know, can you replicate the service or product identically? That's not what we're referring to here. What we're referring to is the purchase cadence. So for example, toothpaste has a relatively predictable purchase cadence, right? Once a month or every three weeks, I run out of the tube of toothpaste that I need to brush my teeth every morning. And so therefore, I run out of toothpaste on a regular, you know, frequent basis. By contrast, if we think of like wedding rings as an example, I've had mine for almost 20 years. I hope to never have to take (laughs) it off. And therefore, I, you know, I've forgotten the place that I bought this, right? I've I've never purchased from them again. Funeral caskets are things that we buy once and we, we move on. These are all uh, things that will score very low on repeatability. Whereas if you've got a product or service where customers purchase on some sort of predictable cadence, well, that's an, a, a product or service that's going to score very high. And therefore, you would want to score that in that second step, a very high score. The third step in the process is once you've done their score on each of the three attributes, is simply to total them. So if you're scoring them out of zero to 10, and you simply total each product or service, you're gonna give them a score out of 30. The third step is once you've totaled them, is to stack rank them. So you stack rank your products and services from the ones that are scoring the highest, all the way down to the product or service that you sell today, which is scoring the lowest on the scalability trifecta. That's the third step in the process, it's relatively easy.
1: Yeah, and then obviously then that starts to highlight the standout products or services. Are there any other considerations you put in around maybe the, the financial side of things when it comes to, you know, how much does it cost to deliver this product or service and where do the margins look like? Is that built into the trifecta or, or a consideration?
0: Yeah, margin is built into the second attribute, value. Because if you're unique in offering this service, if you've got a blue ocean, then you've got a little bit of a pricing authority, right? So you can make sure the margin is there. If you isolate just that one service or product where you have a point of differentiation, then you've got that ability to drive up the margin. Right now, we're not talking about how much revenue you get from those products or services. Because a lot of small businesses may derive a significant amount of revenue from a product or service they are not differentiated on. Yes. And it would be a mistake to to say, okay, we get 60% of our revenue selling this commoditized service. Let's focus on that. It's a recipe for disaster. So really at this point, the attribute or the score on value is really what we're using as a proxy, if you will, for margin, because we know where there's differentiation, there's better margin. Yeah. That's
1: a, a um an interesting example that you brought up there, or one that came to mind was we had a video production business as part of our agency and when we did the numbers and we calculated it all up, it was the least profitable part of the business, yet one of the highest turnover. So, it was bringing in a lot of cash, but a lot of cash was going out to deliver that product. Uh, And then ultimately, we ended up breaking that part of the business out, selling that off. And what's amazing to see is that the business is performing better sort of bottom line now, I think, because of the focus and the, the change within the business by selling what was potentially the highest revenue component of the business.
0: There's something really quite galvanizing for your staff, especially when you choose to exit a part of your business. It really, it really communicates with emphasis that, no, no, we specialize in a certain thing. And if you're willing to walk away from significant amount of revenue, to emphasize that, it has a tremendous knock-on effect, both with your employees, but the yeah. way we market our companies as well and the way we, again, become referable. You know, it's funny. It just this is a bit of an aside. It's not really part of the, the process, but I think it, it's a bugbear for me, so I'll, I'll raise it. You know, we celebrate as, uh, as a business community growth, right? So if you think about the BRW100 in Australia or the Inc. 5000 in the United States or Profit 100 in Canada, what are they all measuring? Revenue. Yes. right it 's this idea of, of top line revenue defining us as entrepreneurs. If we hit ten million in revenue or one hundred million in revenue, wow you know you 're a really smart entrepreneur. whereas what we think about in terms of our company is value right so yeah. we all know companies that, that grow very very quickly. The, but flame out or that grow very quickly and have to give up a lot of equity in order to underwrite that. In a lot of ways, you've heard that expression, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. In our world, we think of it as revenue is vanity, value is sanity. Yeah. Um, there's no way to think about it otherwise. So anyways, I don't know how I
1: got all that. Uh, no, well, with that uh, one as well, uh, it's, not- there's, it's glamorized at the moment, this idea of taking funding, you know, moving to the stage, oh, sure. showing with the next tech startup and going to be a unicorn but the thing with a lot of those investments are at least the 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 investors who go along their game is well let's place as many bets as we can because we know most of them are going to fail and i'm going to find the one unicorn in there and i make my money yet you're going down a very low percentage of success by playing that game as the founder
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so generally, I'm not a big fan of venture capital, the venture capital model for entrepreneurs. Look, if you're running a venture capital fund, you can't virtually lose because you take your management fee and then you invest. And you're right. If you place enough bets, then eventually one's going to hit. So I'm I'm not a fan of it from the entrepreneur's perspective, notwithstanding there are obviously many examples of entrepreneurs that have done very well out of venture capital. It's just not something that I would recommend in, in, in the vast majority of cases. Um, I helped to derail you there. So we'll yeah, that is, that why don't we do the last step in the process? Because yes. I think it would, help, it would help your attendees understand this. So the temptation, I think, for a lot of founders is to look at their stack rank list and see that one or two services or products bubble up to the surface. And maybe us as advisors and consultants and coaches, Maybe look at that and say, "Look, you know, you've got these ten products, but this one over here, although it only represents eight percent of your revenue, it's really the one that has the most you know, potential to scale." And that can be quite scary for a lot of founders because you're walking away from a huge proportion of your revenue. You're not sure it's going to work, and so what I would advocate for in most cases is avoid the temptation to try to make the huge leap to just doing one thing start at the bottom of the list, start in your case, you got rid of the video production business because it was a, although a big revenue, it was a time suck. Great. So if you've got 12 products and services on your list, start with the number 12 that's scoring the lowest, that is most personally dependent on you and that sucks most of your personal time. And once you've gotten rid of that product or service and, and become more referable and made up for the revenue that you're losing as a result of getting rid of it, then go to number 11. And then number 10, it's only for the most kind of strong stomached person that I would advocate to go all the way up to focusing on that one or two. But you'll you'll find that you'll get material benefits by just jettisoning the number 12. Not only will your company become more referable, it will become less dependent on you. And you'll also get lifestyle benefits, right? When you're not personally being sucked into things, you just have better vacations, you have more quality time, to do other thinking with the business. So I would avoid the temptation to go all in out of the gate.
1: Yeah. Another one that, that comes up, once you start to identify those top performing ones, I find, and this is coming from I suppose my systems lens and thinking about system thinking, then similarly at the other end, you can focus on just systemizing the top one as well, mm. or whatever those handful of services are right or products right up the top, because then If you can get those then being delivered without the business owner, then you start to make your business much more scalable. Like you said, similarly, you're you're making the business work more independently of the individual. So and I probably jumped to the gun there. I just
0: get a bit passionate when we start to talk about systems. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, let me share with you an example of a company that went through this scalability trifecta because I think it's one thing to think in theory, uh, you know, to a valuable people. It's another to actually hear a story of someone who went through this process. The guys I'm thinking of are Rob Daly and Paul Duvall, who started a company called Stelligent, kind of like Intelligent with this STE in the front. So they're in this weird space called DevOps. Have you ever heard of DevOps? No, No. (laughs) sounds like a military type of (laughs) cover. No, it has nothing to do with that. What DevOps is, is when you develop a website, you have to find a place to host that website. And there are a few places to host it nowadays. You've got Amazon Web Services. It could live in the Google Cloud, you've heard of that, or Microsoft Azure are the three kind of big dominant players in the space. Now, each of those three hosts has a slightly different language, and therefore, there's a whole sort of community of people, professionals, that have sprouted up called DevOps Professional, stands for Development Operations Professionals, and their job is to take your code that you've developed for your website and basically interpret that code for where you're going to host it. Stelligent starts, and they define themselves as a DevOps company, and they have a lot of different services, right? So if you want your your site hosted by Google Cloud, no problem, they can do it. Microsoft Azure, no problem. I'm Rob Duvall. I'm Paul Daly. I know like everything there is to know about DevOps. I can do it. AWS starts to come on stream. No problem. We can figure out AWS as well. They're the jack of all trades, master of none. In order to fulfill the contracts they get, they go out and hire freelancers, right? Because somebody says, look, I want it on Microsoft Azure. They're like, okay, well, we got to go find a bunch of Microsoft Azure guys. And they go out and and hire a bunch of contract people. Well, not surprisingly, Stelligent reached a plateau beyond which they couldn't grow. It was a million dollars in revenue. They quickly got to a million dollars in revenue, but then they couldn't get beyond it. Why? Because for every project, they had to recruit another team because everybody was different. There was no systems. There was no process. There was no consistent sort of format to delivering. And Rob Daly, who had gone through this scalability trifecta exercise before, looked at Paul and said, we've got to focus on find one thing that scales. And they went through the trifecta of scale that teachable, valuable, repeatable, and they realized that AWS was an area where they had the highest value score, meaning they had become known as a bit of an AWS shop, even though they did Google Azure and Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure. So they made the bold decision. And again, I'm not advocating this for you per se, but they made the bold decision to focus exclusively on AWS they became the AWS DevOps guys. And a funny thing happened, as does a lot of times when you focus, is you become referable. They started to become known as the gurus in AWS. And as AWS grew, Amazon Web Services grew in dominance, guess who grew right in lockstep? The guys from Stelligen. About two years after they focused on AWS, they started to really accelerate their growth. About five years later, they sold their business For more than $20 million. It was a fantastic, incredible exit beyond any sort of pigment of their imagination, but only made possible because they started to focus and went through this trade factor. So I'm a huge advocate of this is the fundamental process. This is the first step, this four-step process I've just taken you through to building the value of your company. Everything
1: else sits on the foundation.
0: This is a foundation.
1: For that final step, when we kind of break it up, we talked about potentially starting to cross off whatever's on the bottom of the list. As that progresses, you know, we could progressively just start chopping from the bottom all the way up. Or if you're a burn the bridges type of person or burn the boats rather, (laughs) maybe not. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Then you can go all in on one. Yeah, if you are kind of working your way up, is there any other suggestions or tips on, on how to then start focusing in? Like I had suggested developing out the systems for those key ones. What are some other ways that you can become very strong in a handful of or even a, a primary product or service?
0: Keep in mind, when if you decide to exit a business like you did, David, you don't have to exit without any monetary compensation, right? So you could sell that division if it's large enough. You could also create a licensing agreement or or basically a partnership agreement where you say, okay, we're exiting this line of business, but we're going to pass all of this revenue. When we get asked for X product or service, we're going to refer it to you. And in return, Mr. Partner, Mrs. Partner, we'd like 10% top line of, of whatever you derive from that relationship. So you don't have to just get rid of it. Number two, and more to your question around processes Keep in mind that what is teachable to your employees is often competing with what is valuable in the eyes of your customers. Let me say that again. Teachable and value, they essentially are offsetting one another. They're competitive to one another. It's very rare to find a product or service that's highly teachable that is also very valuable in the eyes of a customer. Likewise, your most valuable in the eyes of a customer, products, and services are often the least teachable. And that's okay. It's, first of all, natural. So continue on through the process. What you might find, however, is if you bundle more than one of your teachable products and services, you can create a collection of teachable products and services that are, in a collective, more valuable Mm. in the eyes of a customer. Let me give you an example. So there's a guy named Darren Root based in the United States who has an accounting practice. And he specializes in doing accounting for physicians and doctors and dentists and chiropractors, people in the medical community. And what he realized was that for a lot of them, they didn't really need a full-time office manager. They kind of needed one a little bit of the year, but they really didn't need that back office manager to do the billing and the processing and submitting insurance claims and so forth. And so what he decided to do in his accounting practice was to bundle up all the highly teachable services that he offered. So bank reconciliations, making sure the credit cards uh, processes were, you know, making sure the deposits were done properly, all the kind of on their own, very teachable, but commoditized services. Mm -hmm. And what he did was bundle them up and brand them as the boss system. So now what Darren Root offers is an accounting practice, and he goes to physicians and medical people, is the BOSS system, which stands for back office support system. It's all those highly commoditized things that most accountants offer, again, bank re- reconciliation, credit card statements, et cetera, bundled together as a back office support system, which became very valuable to doctors because it meant they didn't have to hire a full-time office manager. So what would cost them $50,000, $60,000 a year for a person is now only costing them fifteen dollars or $20,000 a year in fees with, with Darren's company. And so it was an example of a bundling a bunch of those teachable services together into a solution or I hate the word solution, but I can't think of a better one at this point into a bundled offering that was more valuable in the eyes of his customers. So if you do find yourself with teachable and valuable, kind of competing a little bit with one another, consider bundling teachable services into a, an overall offering.
1: Yeah, I think it's good. You kind of touched on that in the book Built to Sell as well, that idea of kind of coming up with your own unique way of, of delivering sort of value. So that, that makes perfect sense. I suppose, are there any final points that you want to add to this? I feel like it's quite clear. I mean, and this feels like something that needs to happen right up front before you consider doing lots of things in the business, like whether it's systemizing, whether it's thinking about building your business with the idea of selling it, whether it's trying to step out, like it feels like it's I'm so glad that you shared this system and it wasn't the one originally I was thinking about we would cover yet. It is the first thing that you need to get clear. It's almost like getting clear on what your target audience is and the problem that you're solving for that person. Like it's fundamental in the process that get that clear because everything else will build off the back of this.
0: Everything else sits on top of it. And in particular building systems. So again, if you're trying to build systems into your company, for every product and service you offer, the number of systems you need grows exponentially, not in a linear way, right? Because you have, for each product or service that you offer, you've got to systematize a whole different bunch of variants, right? So Mm -hmm. what if Docker moms buy this product? How is their sister different when, when teenagers buy the product? What if we're delivering online versus in store? I mean, for every variation of a product or services, there could be a whole series of processes you need to document. And if you're anything like me, eventually when you're documenting a process, you have to throw up your hands in the air and think, man, I can't think of every possible variation, iteration, and nuance. And part of that comes down to you're just offering too many things. And so I agree. I think this process of identifying what your scalability trifecta are, what, it, what product or service in your company is the foundation, that makes systematizing your business so much easier.
1: It's funny because one thing that you mentioned there triggered a, a thought in my mind around people try to, when they think about systemization, they think, I need to systemize like McDonald's. And they're thinking about the Olympic athlete that has been training all of their life mcdonald's has been systemizing for 60 years you look at the end product and go i should systemize like that i need to systemize every aspect of my business so i can get a 15 year old to come in and flip these hamburgers with zero to no training and even just that thought maybe start off how did mcdonald's systemize or get started 60 years ago that would be a much better place to start and then also thinking in terms of the different businesses so i always that overwhelm i think the the first step of systemization and in, in our systemology process is you need to narrow it down to 10 to 15 systems and start there it's the
0: classic 80 20 what's going to give you the biggest impact I agree a hundred percent you're right I love your McDonald's examples. I mean they are the they've been doing it for yeah say yeah you just swim like the torpedo it's easy yeah, that, <laughs> you know, like, right. actually, no, it's kind of hard <laughs>
1: So, ah, yeah. oh, very good. Well, in the tail end, I don't know if there are any final points with this particular system, and then obviously I want to point people in the right direction to find out more about your work because it, it's quite deep. Like we've really just scratched the surface. So I think, yeah, big fan of your work and love for people to get over and see more about what you guys are doing.
0: Great, right, yeah. I mean, I think we've tackled the scalability track. As I said, it's one of the 12 steps we take business owners through to help them improve the value of their company leading up to ultimately an exit. Now, a lot of business owners say, well, I'm, I'm years away from wanting to sell. We make the point that regardless of whether you want to sell now or in five or 10 years, building the foundation now, is just like a, you know owning a home. You, you want to know what's going up in value, even though you may not necessarily want to sell it right now. So, yeah, we don't have time to go through all of the other 11 steps. But certainly, if you go to valuebuilder.com, you can opt in and we'll, we'll get you information about the other 11.
1: Yeah, perfect. All right. So I'll make sure I put a, a link in the show notes to check that out. And and John, thank you very much for your time. Always, yeah, very generous with your knowledge. So appreciate your work.
0: It's great to be with you, David. Thanks. You've just been listening to the System Hub podcast. Remember, we've documented this system for you so you can literally swipe and deploy it within your business. Head to www.systemhub.com forward slash podcast to download it now.